Hey, it's Agrita Andreou, and you're listening to the Mindful of Everything podcast, which calls for the radical healing of self and community that can allow us to outgrow cultures of scarcity and hyper individualism so that we can collectively move to more caring and regenerative ways of living and working in community. Today, we're joined by Rebecca Shaman. The fact that we've allowed the capitalist system to get so entrenched in its commodification of anything that is a free element for everybody else has we've reached a point of crisis. And the only way I feel that we can come out of this crisis is to reach unity consciousness, which is a remembrance that we're all interconnected, that we are the ancestors of our future generations, and that we need to recognize that everything that shares this planet with us is equally as important and any action that we do that is harming another species or even our species is going against natural law. Rebecca is a plant medicine shaman inspiring conscious change in the urban jungle by bringing nature and humanity back into balance through working intimately with the master plant medicines ayahuasca, cacao and cannabis over the past 25 years. Through her work, Rebecca has inspired urban dwellers to live shamanically by reconnecting to the rhythms of life through the master plant ceremony she offers under the guidance of indigenous shamans in the Amazon. Rebecca is the managing director of the British Hemp Alliance, which promotes hemp as an environmental tool to reaching net zero in the UK. And she's also the CEO of Ritual Cacao, one of the largest suppliers of ceremonial grade cacao in the UK. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. It's lovely to have you on here. Welcome, Agrita. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, I'm super, super excited. Finally, we're getting together to talk about something that has so much meaning for both of us. And so I'm super excited to get into the conversation. But before we begin, as we do with every single episode, I would love for you to join us in the breathing practice that we like to do in this space. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. So to begin, I would love if we could all just close our eyes in our own time. Really just sort of relaxing into the chair that you're in or on whatever sort of platform you're on right now. Again, just taking those deep breaths. We will take five deep breaths together. But just throughout the exercise, taking those deep breaths and really bringing that focus back to the body is what we're trying to do in this practice. So I'd like to first of all just become a bit more aware of your surroundings. Pay attention to the sounds in the room right now. Just becoming aware of the space that's holding you in this moment. Even where you're seated, where your feet are, noticing those sensations and how you're placed within this space. So now we're going to encourage our bodies to really relax into a position that's very comfortable for us. Again, this requires practice to really understand what is your relaxed point. But that's exactly why we do that every single month in this space. So we're going to start off with 
the shoulders. Just gradually bring them up and then push them back. Really getting that stretch and then allowing them to fall. And really just feeling where that feels good for you. And you can do that a few more times just to get that position right. And taking those deep breaths in between. Now let's bring the attention to the spine. Similarly to the shoulders, we're just going to allow our spine to sort of stretch so we can sit up straight. Hold that for a few seconds and then allow yourself to get into a position that is not too up straight and not too slouched. So something that can get you ready and focused, not just for the episode, but also for the rest of the practice. Now we're going to focus on the neck as well. Your head might be a bit down right now as you're focusing on your body, but just lift it up a bit so your head is not too up and your neck is not too sort of stretched but just sort of comfortable position now let's focus on the hands your hands could be resting on your thighs right, right now or your knees or they could be cupped together that doesn't matter but we are going to focus on how our hands and our fingers are place right now so just allowing the fingers to relax and you can feel that so usually our fingers and our hands and you know the other parts of our bodies are often locked in a position as we're focused on something that is not or at least we're focused on something that our body is not really the center of attention but now we're going to focus on how we can sort of release ourselves from that position so really just feeling the hands and the fingers Relax. And now we're going to focus on the legs and the feet as well. If you're sat in a cross-legged position, we can still allow the legs to relax. If you're sitting on a chair right now and you feel like your feet are quite tensed or there's sort of the pressures on your balls of your feet, then we can relax that too. Hopefully right now you can feel the difference between what we started with as we began the exercise together and what we are in right now. No, because this exercise is all about becoming aware of how our body sort of responds to different situations and what feels right for us when we need to pull away from certain stressful situations or just the day-to-day stress that we have as well. So now we're going to take five deep breaths together. But again, you can take as many more as you want. We're going to take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Deep breath in and a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in 
and a deep breath out. Deep breath in. And a deep breath out. Now in your own time, and when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining us in that. Amazing. Okay, so I think just to begin the episode, it would be amazing if you could just talk a bit about your journey into shamanism, but how that led you into the global policy journey that you've embarked on now. Yeah, so um, I was offered a job in a hotel in Machu Picchu as a cultural activities Mm. manager. At the time, I had a long-term boyfriend and quite a good job, um, but I was feeling quite restless. Mm-hmm. and I'd always had this dream of going to Machu Picchu. So it had kind of been a dream of mine for quite a few years. And then all of a sudden, my father is was in the hotel business. And so he um, knew uh, this guy that his friend was looking for somebody. Anyway, so I applied for the job and I got it. Yeah. Um, but as soon as I got the job, I got a really bad foreboding feeling that something terrible was going to happen to me. So I went to a psychic and I said, like, what do I do? Because I mean, offered this job, it's a dream job. It's something that I've always wanted to do, but I've just got this really awful feeling about it. I feel like something terrible is going to happen to me. And she said, yes, I see it could be really dark out there and you could always, you could even die out there. It's going mm. to be, it could be, it's going to be quite a horrific situation mm-hmm. I advise you not to go because I see that if you stay in the UK you'll have a um, very big career in banking and you'll will become a very successful banker and and that's that would be the other path and so the next day I bought my ticket to Peru I thought I'd rather <laughs> die in Peru than ever be a banker like mm-hmm. obviously the psychic yeah. didn't know me that well <laughs> so I flew to Peru um, and the psychic's words came true. I mean, it did get very, very dark out there for a number of reasons, of which you can read in my book, The Shame is Asked Apprentice. And in order to relieve some of the stress and anxiety that I was feeling, I used to go running in the mountains, um, obviously in the Andes. And one day I uh, got lost up there and the sun was setting and um, I was only wearing like a, a T-shirt and shorts. And of course, this was pre-mobile, pre-anything really. I had no water, no jumper. And, and the sun was setting quite quickly behind the other side of the mountain. And I lost the path. And I was walking around the mountain trying to find the path. And the, the path wasn't didn't really exist. And then it got slippier and slippier. And I suddenly thought, oh, my God, I'm going to fall down this mountain. I really am. Actually, this is the moment I'm going to die. The psychic words are coming true. And at that moment, even however difficult things were, I was just not really ready to die at that point. And I really felt this deep panging of, you know, I don't want to go yet. I don't know why I'm here, what the hell's going on, but I don't want to die just yet. So as I was falling down the mountain, I sent out a prayer of uh, just to save me and to tell me like what the hell I'm doing here, what it was all about. Because it felt like I've done all of this life just to fall down a mountain and die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, yeah. Am I really ready to go like that? Like, you know, anyway, a tree saved me. So I fell in between mm-hmm. a tree, a tree saved me. 
and I was able to get down to the base of the of, of the mountain and that night I went out into the mountains and I was like what am I doing here what's it all about um I need help and a shaman came to me in a vision and mm-hmm. said to me you had to get to this point to see me I'm waiting for you and if you believe in me enough you'll find me and I I, I believe that when I was falling down the mountain, I really did think I was going to die because of what the psychic had said to me. And so I was preparing for death. Like that was for me, it was all over. And so my brain was secreting a lot of chemicals at that point. And that night, the Don Juanito, the shaman, was had taken ayahuasca. And I believe we met in that fifth dimensional space, dimension mm. um, outside of the three dimensional spaces that we're just, we, we only know. And he called me specifically because it was more than an apparition. It was more than like um, a feeling. It was a proper vision. And he came through the dimensional spaces to tell me. And so I flew to the Amazon. I found him and I became his apprentice and trained with him. I trained with him up until he died. And then I trained with his wife for the next um, and at the next like six years. So it was 14 years altogether that I trained with my teacher in the Amazon, which meant that I only drank the medicine that I made in the Amazon from the medicine that we grew. I didn't drink anyone else's medicine and I didn't interact with anyone else's ceremonies. I just worked directly with my shaman for 14 years um, before the ayahuasca. Um, I served it to my mother in the Mm -hmm. Amazon and that's when the ayahuasca said, now you are uh, free to offer ayahuasca to other people. You're, you you passed your apprenticeship, so that's how I got onto the path. But I obviously trained with Don Juanito for three and a half months. Found him in the Amazon, trained with him, and then came back to the UK. And really, that I would say that's where the work began in the Amazon. It was more the initiation. The real apprenticeship yeah. actually happened back in the UK. But I made a commitment to the plants and to Don Juanito that I would never stray from the path and that I would just follow this path. And, and and that's what I've done for the last 25 years. So I've, I've stayed true to that training and that, and, and him as my teacher. And I, I didn't take another teacher. I didn't mm-hmm. take another guru for me. It's the plants and, and really just the plants now. I mean, Don Juanito has been dead for many, many years and I haven't, and I, uh, for me now, my plants are my, my teachers and I work directly with them. And also Mother Earth, who's who I call my boss. And actually, yes. um, I take my I take my marching orders from her, not from anybody else. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's beautiful. That's absolutely amazing. So, just to talk about some of the work that you've done here, and um, you know, the knowledge that you brought here to us British people, how has it been promoting ceremonious plants in the UK? overall like I know there would be certain challenges that you've had to overcome but yeah overall how has it been have people been like warm to to that or I'm um spanning 25 years of Mm. plant medicine shamanism so of course when I got back no one had even heard of ayahuasca no one even knew anything Uh. about plant medicines uh this was in the early early days I think there was one or two um academic papers that had just come out but it wasn't no one knew anything. So for about five years, I buried the experience mm-hmm. until I left. So I, when I got back to the UK, I basically said to the plants and Mother Earth, like, what do you want me to do? Where do I go with this? 
And I basically had like three choices. I could just ignore it and go out to work and take it as an experience and 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 just put it down to like an adventure, write a book or um, become a healer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew I wasn't ready to go out and get a job just because um, I was so deeply involved still in the Amazon. I just couldn't, I wouldn't have been able to have been boxed into a corporate job. So I knew that that wasn't really going to work. I couldn't really write a book because I wasn't 100% sure what had happened to me and I still needed time to integrate it. And I didn't want it to be a book about me going to the Amazon and drinking with a shaman and yada, yada, yada. I, I knew he had planted something much deeper and more profound in mm-hmm. me. Yeah. And I needed to let that integrate and grow within, like he just planted a seed. So I wasn't really ready to talk about it in in that sense. So I thought, oh, well, I'll just go out and um, be, you know, a shaman. But then, of course, mm-hmm. I'd done loads of ayahuasca in the Amazon with a master plant shaman, and it was deep and dark and difficult and challenging. And I was unsure how I could replicate that, what happened out there here in the UK. So I thought I better, I need a modality, like a healing modality. So I went to a healer friend of mine who was a psychic surgeon in the UK. And I said to him, can I work with you? Can you teach me a modality? I've trained in shamanism, but not really because I just took a load of plant medicines and it's very Amazonian based. And I don't know how to replicate that here in the UK, but I need, I need some kind of Western modality to put that energy into a framework. And he said to me, I can't help you. I see a teacher coming into your life, but it's not me. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not the right, I'm not, I can't, I can't give you what you need. And as I going back to my home, I realized that I'd already had my teacher or my teachers. <laughs> and that was the plant medicines and Don Juanito. And I wasn't ready to run into a whole nother apprenticeship with a whole nother teacher, yeah. you know, usually a man. Um, and do a whole nother, a whole nother initiation with somebody else when I was still really, really, really unsure of what had just happened to me with this teacher. Also, I knew Don Juanito had given me something really powerful and I wasn't ready to overwrite it with a whole new set of modalities and things. And yeah, I really sense. wanted, so I made a commitment to the plants at that point that I was only going to stick to this path and that mm-hmm. they would, I would go where they sent me. And I got the message that I had to do a master's degree in development economics and bring the messages of the shaman and sustainability and what I'd learned and the plants to the corporate world. And so I went completely in the opposite direction that I think anyone else would have gone into. (laughs) I ended up doing an MSc in development studies um, at SOAS, School of Oriental and African Studies. And then I got a job with the World Travel and Tourism Council managing the the CEOs and presidents of the top travel and tourism industry companies in corporate social responsibility and sustainable development. So for five years, I kind of buried the experience of the Amazon and took on this, this corporate role and became a really high flyer, ended up writing policy for the United Nations Environment Programme on travel and tourism, became a keynote speaker, talked all around the world but then I got to the world summit on sustainable development in Johannesburg in 2002 and basically realized that we were pretty doomed that security Mm -hmm. safety surveillance was all going to come up to the surface and actually the environment was dropping right down the political agenda this was because it was after 9-11 
so just after 9 11 yeah. so the air the environment completely changed and whereas the environment was really a, a key thing in in the early 2000s very very quickly it it dropped down and it was all about surveillance and security and terrorism and all of that so i had a bit of a meltdown and the shaman came to me and he said right you've seen the shit from the top you know what's going on now you know now you have to leave you have to write your first book the shaman's last apprentice and then you have to go and find yourself and find out who you really are. And so in, in 2003, I left my job and basically went out, forged my forged out, not really as a shaman, but with all that knowledge. To, and mm. I had no idea what to do with it. Five years had gone by. Ayahuasca was now starting to get known in the West. But I had been told by my plants that I wasn't to get involved in the growth of ayahuasca here in the UK that she was my my teacher, but not the medicine that I was meant to serve. So I started a cannabis business, a hemp business, and I started to work with hemp and I um, to promote hemp as a plant medicine. And mm-hmm. so I felt like ayahuasca led me to hemp. And then in 2010, I went bankrupt with my hemp company, went back to the Amazon, trained again, finished my apprenticeship with the ayahuasca, and then it was the ayahuasca that told me to bring cacao back to the West and work with cacao as a plant medicine for stress and anxiety and a much better medicine for the West. So in uh, 2013, 2003, I left my corporate job. (laughs) 2013, I came back with 21 pounds of cacao in my rucksack. And now 2023, um, I'm having the second, the next level evolutionary shift as well. But this journey with plant medicines is a lifelong journey. There's no instant, immediate things that, you know, is a very slow process. Nature takes a time and everything takes time in nature. And anyone that's on this path, they is it's a lifetime journey mm-hmm. of it. There's no beginning and there's no real end. It's just a continuous. So it's just a, it's just a shift of evolutionary sh- shifts. So, um, I've been so I work specifically with ayahuasca, with cannabis, and cacao, and now mushrooms. And those mm-hmm. are my um, my plants. And I and for me, it's all about the deep dive. But cannabis and cacao are probably the most politicized plants on the planet. And I yeah. feel I'm on a mission for both of them to support them in removing the shackles that have stopped them from mm-hmm. being very important plant medicines for human health and well being. So when I talk about shamanism, for me, it's very specifically plant medicine shamanism. It's very specifically, I trained in the Amazon with plants. I speak the language of plants, but I work specifically with cacao and cannabis and ayahuasca and mushrooms. So I don't, I can work with any plant and I can communicate with any plant, but I I just at the moment feel, I, I feel very connected to those three plants. Like I feel like they are the plants that I've been called to work with specifically, because mm-hmm. um, I'm not a herbalist. I wouldn't even call myself a medicine woman. For me, my journey has been plant medicine and shamanism and has been for 25 years and will be for the next 25 years on getting cacao repositioned as a plant medicine, as a master plant medicine of stress and anxiety, getting cannabis recognized as an essential plant for the environment and also for health and well-being and also ideally to get ayahuasca recognized as a really important plant for Mm -hmm. consciousness 
So that that those are the missions that I'm on. And so I I I don't really mix with anything else. I don't mix with any other concepts of shamanism. And I don't really work with anything else other than plants. So I only do really cacao ceremonies when it comes to plants. And I take people to the Amazon to drink ayahuasca. And I do that every year. So I go to the Amazon once a year and I do my own dietas out there. And I still okay. work very closely. So for the last 25 years, I'm still deeply, deeply connected to the Amazon. And every year I go out there and I've seen lots of people come and go. But for me, it's my life path and I, it's my mm-hmm. mission. And I feel that's why I'm here to to be on this path. And I, for me, my life was before Peru and after Peru. Like yeah. that was a diff- that getting on that plane and going off to Machu Picchu changed the course of my life forever. Mm-hmm. And but also on the other side of that, I chose that. I chose <laughs> that destiny, not not just by getting on the pl- plane and going out there and doing it, but coming back, making that commitment that I wouldn't get off go off the path. And that was again a choice that I made, and so I stuck to the path through all the trials and tribulations and it's been it's been loads of trials and tribulations like as like anything but for me I'm on a mission so I'm fueled by plants <laughs> the passion of plants and I'm fueled by my mission so regardless of how challenging it's been I've also seen a big shift in consciousness shamanism mm-hmm. is much more uh, there's a much more of an awareness around shamanism than there has been for you know years and yeah. it's now not such a underground subculture now it's really coming in much more into the mainstream and I'm seeing a lot mm-hmm. more people getting involved in it and it's not as weird and wonderful as it was it's becoming a lot more recognized and accepted and a lot more people are interested in it but there's lots of different forms I don't think you can you can pin down shamanism it's it's a word that encompasses so many different aspects of it. So mm-hmm. I call myself a plant medicine shaman so as to not to confuse who I am and what I do. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. That's so beautiful. You know, you falling down the mountain and then getting protected by a tree, saved by a tree. And then how that's and how those plants have like supported you and guided you throughout that process, whilst also allowing you that space to make those decisions for yourself. It's just that's what you call a true teacher, right? Like a true yes. guru. Yeah, and a, yeah it's, it's amazing to see that. I just wanted to um, know a bit more about the ceremonies. So you're able to do cacao ceremonies in the UK, but not ayahuasca. Is is that how it is? So people have to go to the Amazon to do those ceremonies. How does it kind of work? So most plant medicines are illegal. Yeah. Anything that is a psychedelic or a psychoactive has has been made illegal. Mm. So, and most plants have some kind of psychoactive you know um, medicinal benefit to them Mm. um but cacao is legal because it's chocolate (laughs) but it has a psychoactive elements Mm. to it so but it's very heart opening it's very loving it's very peaceful um but it definitely is also quite visionary so um yeah so I take people on a journey to meet the cacao spirit and to hear the wisdom that the cacao has for them specifically so that's how I work with cacao, as I work with ayahuasca, cannabis, mm-hmm. and any other plant. 
when I trained in the Amazon, I learned the language of the plants. So I can decipher and they talk to me. I also have done a lot of dietas in the Amazon, yeah. plant dietas outside of ayahuasca. So I trained for many, many years to know this language. It's You can't just do one ceremony and think you're going to be it's it's a lifelong journey and like anything you master it over a period of time so mm-hmm. after i've yeah. been mastering it over many 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 years i've done i've worked with cannabis for 16 years ayahuasca for 25 years cacao for 10 years and this is pure dedication to these plants not doing anything else so i've reached a level of mastery with these mm-hmm. plants that comes from doing it as long as I have my doing my 10,000 hours, as Malcolm Gladwell would say, uh, doing my time. And it is about that, like with everything, certainly with ayahuasca and um, other plant medicines, you have to really understand how to work with them um, exactly. and how to and how to be. And that takes that takes practice. It's like swimming. You can read all the books on swimming that you want, but until you get into the water, you have no idea how you're going to swim or how you're going to cope with the water. And that is the same with working with plant medicines. You can read all the books, watch all the YouTube videos, you know, digest all the all the podcasts. But until mm-hmm. you're in the ceremony drinking the medicine, you have no idea how you're going to swim in that. And I've had so many years of experience and I've taken so many people on journeys. Um, I've even, I've actually pretty much lost count how many people I have served ayahuasca to I just so just over the years that I I've I've seen almost everything that you can see in a ceremony but even with ayahuasca I wouldn't do ayahuasca without being with an indigenous person yes like for me that's Mm. really important because ayahuasca is an indigenous plant to Peru and I feel out of respect for the plant then it needs to be assisted by with an indigenous person. So I work with a Shipibo shaman, um, and I have always ever worked with a Shipibo shaman. I, I could offer ayahuasca without them, but personally, I feel that if you're going to take ayahuasca, you want to take it to do it properly. You want to take it with someone who is indigenous to that culture, and we're not. Whereas with yes, cacao, yeah. we are. Mm. Cacao doesn't have an in it does it has an it has an ancient indigenous connection to the Aztecs and the Mayans, but cacao is prolific and doesn't have protocols. Ayahuasca mm-hmm. has important protocols that need to be adhered to and certain rules and diets and regulations that are really important in order to get the most out of the medicine, which I feel are very hard to adhere to in this Western culture, whereas cacao doesn't. So you can rock up to a cacao ceremony, even if you got pissed the night before or took a load of drugs <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> ate a big meal, it doesn't matter. Cacao is mm-hmm. still going to work. Whereas with ayahuasca, obviously, there's a lot of contraindications if you're taking it and you haven't done the inner work first or the preparation for it first. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'm really happy that you mentioned how you like to work with Indigenous leaders when you are carrying out ceremonies like with ayahuasca. Um, I think that's just so important. And one of like the drawbacks of sort of mainstreaming these medicines and these ceremonies is that when it enters these spaces that don't have that cultural sort of awareness and understanding of that plant, you can get a lot of 
cultural appropriation and people can become a bit disrespectful or like they without even knowing that they are disrespecting like the culture and and um the medicine in itself so it's it's really nice to see that you actually work with the people from the land to provide that for people that you know who are indigenous to the place i think that's so important um and i feel like in that way people can actually better understand the plant as well if you have that cultural understanding of the land and and the people that help protect you know these um plants i think that's so important it's great that you center that in your practice but it's also lovely to see how cacao is a plant that you know can be taken on in many different cultures you don't have to work with a cultural leader in that way yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the ayahuasca was very clear to me as well. Ayahuasca should be, t- I mean, a lot of people can't make it to the Amazon and I get that. So yeah, that's why yeah. she's come out of the Amazon to the UK. But there's been a lot of misuse and abuse and mm. not enough strictly strict adherence to the protocols. But I trained with a master plant medicine in the Amazon. So I know the implications, but I also know how powerful she is when you do it, you know, deeply. And I see a lot of people going back time and again in the UK to keep on taking ayahuasca because it's almost like they're scratching the itch but not quite getting down to the to the wound yeah. mm-hmm. and when you come to the Amazon you commit to 10 days it's a full deep dive I grow my own medicine so we harvest the medicine together we cook up the medicine together and we drink the medicine together so it's a full unique deep dive um into ayahuasca shamanism of the Amazon um and I do that because that's how I was trained. And my teacher was an old school shaman that lived in a mm-hmm. village 14 hours away from Iquitos. He was a local shaman that was the medicine man for that area because at the yeah. time there was no pharmaceuticals. There was no pharmaceutical mm-hmm. medication. There was no clinics. No one could afford medicine anyway. So no one, there was no money there. This was pre-1997, was still pre-communications. So globalization globalization hadn't quite hit yet so it was still kind of a very small um self-sufficient community that relied on the shaman to heal them using plant medicines and so i was very very privileged to have that unique experience just as i would say that door was closing and i don't think you will find that you would be very hard pushed to find that same experience because m- mobile phones are m- masks are all over the Amazon now. So yeah. there's there's communications everywhere now and roads and the government also has become a lot more involved in these communities than it did previously. Mm-hmm. So it's completely different. But then you're looking 25 years ago. So again, you know, time marches on and a lot of changes have happened. So I I was probably one of the last people I would say to have experienced that kind of unique and pure shamanism, plant medicine shamanism of the Amazon mm-hmm. before it got, yeah. you know, taken over by money and tourism. And that's another thing. A lot of the shamans came into Iquitos, made a lot of money. Oh. So you lost the purity yeah. of just a, a, a shaman just working in his community serving people and people don't want to take ayahuasca anymore they want to take pills they don't want to you know they don't want they don't want to be puking their guts up and (laughs) you know having terrible visions if they can take a pill they can Mm. take a paracetamol (laughs) their their headache so it's it's gone full cycle now we've got all the westerners wanting to take a load of psycho you know 
psychoactive yeah. substances to feel better and you've got the the indigenous the indigenous cultures wanting to just take pharmaceuticals because it's much simpler and easier and pain goes quicker mm. i think it's also a question of privilege too right so if you have that money or that surplus money to support you in doing things that you know you don't really need to like profit from them then that's okay but a lot of indigenous people they don't have that money already so then they're just probably looking for you know um, more effective solutions that are quick and simple as opposed to someone who has everything in the west and then can afford to go all the way to the amazon and then engage in these ceremonies and you know it's perfectly fine for them i definitely think is like a privilege thing as well when you're making decisions on what sort of medicines we can use and engage in oh definitely it's, it's difficult yeah, it's definitely. I mean, but in the West, in 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 the Amazon now, I mean, there's a lot more money. There's a yeah. lot more. They're not they're not living like that anymore. And they all they all want a lifestyle like us. Yeah, they all they all aspire to that kind of lifestyle. They all want. They don't want to cook on an open fire anymore. They all want gas cookers. Um, mm-hmm. they all want that kind of stuff. The problem is, of course, there's nowhere to throw anything away. There's no one mm-hmm. coming to pick up their gas bottles and they're this and they're that and they're you know so the waste yeah. has become a lot worse I mean it has its it comes with its own problems uh, but I was just very blessed when I went there and trained with Don Juanita as the only westerner in that whole area and I was very privileged to have that experience with him and to train with him and and to be with him and, and his family in that environment before you know, it's all different now. Even when I go to that village, it's completely changed. Everyone's got a pecky pecky on the back of their canoe. So everyone can afford a motor now. Everyone can yeah. afford gasoline, which means that the river's a lot more polluted, which means there's less fish, less birds. Mm-hmm. Um, there's noise up and down the river all night as people go fishing in, in, in the evening. Whereas, you know, when I was there... By seven o'clock, it was completely silent because, of course, no one could afford to have a motor on the back of their canoe. So, there, you know, by nightfall, nothing was going on. There's three bars in the village or with generators. It's noisy and busy. It's like a village. Yeah. Um, it's changed a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Must be difficult, right, to see that, like, like you said, right, to see it from, like, the pure sort of state. And now it's just... I mean, that's what globalization does and there are benefits to that um i don't think that you know people in villages should really just be using like an open fire to make food and i think they also should have those luxuries that we do as well but there will always be that you know the consequence of that and not being able to manage the resources as, as well as you know western countries and wealthier countries or even just like wealthier places within that country it's difficult <laughs> it all comes back down to the same thing, though. Like human beings, essentially, are all the same. Whether you're living in a hut in Africa or you're living in a flat in London, what I've learned is that everyone wants to aspire to do better and have yeah. more and live more freely. And so the mod cons that we take for granted, they obviously they want out there. So. Mm. It's, but it's interesting because then you see a massive rise of Westerners going out to the Amazon to experience the other side of it. So, but I have to say, like, I grew up in London, I was London based, and I felt more connected when I was in the Amazon yeah. than I did 
when I but than I do when I'm in London. So actually, when I go back to the Amazon, that's when I feel I'm home, and I always mm-hmm. feel a bit wonky here. So for me, actually, I feel that real peace and harmony and love really when I'm back when I'm in the Amazon. And the Amazon has become a really important place for me to go once a year, so I can reconnect. Yeah, amazing. So just sort of focusing on the work that you're doing in policy, how has it been sort of transitioning from this very intimate and place-based, you know, practice of actually engaging and communicating with the plants to now this sort of macro level policy work? Because if you think about it, they, you know, it's like two different perspectives for the same sort of issue, right? Or they're both advocating for what I like to call more than human rights and more than human knowledge, indigenous and local knowledge too. But it's like two different sort of takes to it, two different uh, viewpoints. So how has it been sort of transitioning from the micro to the macro? I straddle both. So I do community work and I I do top down and bottom up. For me, there's no separation. Mm. It's all of it. It's whatever needs to get done, I do. So I I have a... a connection to the roots and the community but I think without having that top down it felt like there wasn't that there was something missing so I feel it's really important to have a foot in both worlds yeah and in, in, in both that's so I've I I so I came back from the Amazon and I went into policy mm. and and worked in that environment and I didn't know who I was because I was come out of the Amazon and went straight into corporate. I was in a terrible fight with myself because my ego was saying, what are you doing? You've trained in the Amazon doing ayahuasca. You know, what the, why are you wearing like a suit and going into the corporate world? You're going in the opposite direction. And this is like mm-hmm. totally wrong. And yeah. I, I was in a, I was in a very difficult um, dilemma for quite a few years in that space. And then I left the corporate world and and kind of went into the subculture of the underground poetry, conscious poetry scene and mm-hmm. the shamanism scene. And I found a whole crew of people in, in London that were all very kind of living, what I call living shamanically, living, you know, in tune with nature and in tune with life. And, and it showed me that, oh my gosh, I can do this in London. That was big eye opener for me that actually doesn't I don't have to be in the Amazon to be connected to Mother Earth I can be anywhere in the world and be connected to others she's in me she's not it's not where I am she's always in me absolutely so that was very powerful and that was like 2003 so I had a bigger spiritual kind of awakening in London also I think being freed from the corporate world and the policy I was like feeling that freedom and oh now I've got a chance to really explore me so I really thought that it wouldn't take 20 years (laughs) to find out like who I am but it was an interesting it's been a really interesting journey and Rebecca Shaman that for me understanding more of who I am and and my name changing and all of that has been part of the whole process and I kind of reached a point where I know who I am I'm very clear who I am I love myself I've done what I've wanted to do in regards to that exploration so now it's coming back into that I've I've done my 20 years in grassroots Mm -hmm. that now I feel ready to come full cycle and go back into policy but also having that connection to the grassroots because again if you're a general and you don't you don't know your army then you're a useless general and likewise if you're in the army but you don't know how to lead again it you're not you can't be a leader so so for me I've done both I've done policy 
I've been in the army for 20 years <laughs> and now I feel it's time for me to go back into the policy, which I feel has always been my journey because that was the first place that I went to after I went back, came back from the Amazon. So it was obviously what was needed. And the plants always said to me, this is a lifelong journey. So don't rush it. It's all perfectly in, in, in an alignment and in attunement. And at the right time, everything is just going to open up and, and, and bloom really. So just, you know, don't rush, don't rush it through. And, and I really see that because I really have had a massive adventure over the last, mm-hmm. you know, 25 years since coming back from the Amazon. But one thing that's been really important is that my sense of self is intact and has been intact and has been able to really express, I've been able to express myself without having any kind of a lot of negativity or uh, trolling or abuse. And that's really enabled me to root down into what I really need to be doing and getting on with it. Um, so now I've reached a point where it actually doesn't matter anymore because it is who I am. It's it's after 25 years. <laughs> There's nowhere else for me to go, you know. <laughs> I'm so deeply on the path now. There's no, there's never going to be a, a time where I'm going to be doing something else now. Just I feel like all those potential pitfalls of moving into another life have gone, and now I just see this this path for the next 25 years. Yeah, yeah, amazing. I just want to talk a bit more about the framework that you use of unity consciousness, Mm -hmm. which is something that really sort of stood out to me when I first saw. So just to let the listeners know, I was um, introduced to Rebecca through Jimena and um, it took me a while to actually get to you and actually, um, you know, look at the work that you've done. But when I, for example, went onto your website and I was looking through all the amazing work you've done, unity consciousness is something that really stood out to me. And it's something that I deeply um, aligned to as well. So if you could explain what that framework means to you and how important it is when we are looking at healing the policy world and healing politics as well. It's something that I also mentioned in um, the dissertation that I carried out for my master's. I talked about that in the previous episode. It is all about healing politics and healing those systems, those moral and political systems that are they're supposed to serve us and our needs, but really fail to do that. And I think unity consciousness really come into that when we're talking about policy reform. So it'd be amazing if you could tell us a bit about that, what that means to you and how that's informing your work now. Yeah, so for me, we were in separation consciousness, which means that we're not, we feel separated, um, mm-hmm. ego focused. Um, yeah. So it's all about the I and getting the I satisfied and fulfilled without recognizing that we're part of a interconnected and interwoven system with all living things that share our planet with us, from the trees to the plants to the insects, from the very smallest to the very biggest, including the waters, the fires, the air, all the elements. I mean, everything has a consciousness and Mm -hmm. we have really disconnected from that consciousness. We've gone into separation consciousness. And it's been over a long period of time that we've almost forgotten this duty that we have to leave this planet healthy for future generations. Our sole duty as humans is to leave this planet healthy and living for future generations. And we are really failing at that right now. Mm -hmm. And in order to fulfill that mission that we have 
to be the ancestors for the future generations. We're the ancestors for the future generations. They're going to look back on us and either bless us or curse us. Chances are they're Mm going to curse us. And we've also forgotten that obviously Mother Earth really provides everything we need to be healthy human beings. And the way we rape and, and abuse the natural resources that she offers us, how we've abused water and air and land that is our natural birthrights as humans that we should have access to any way to live that we in fact that we've allowed the capitalist system to get so entrenched in its commodification of anything that is a free commodity for everybody yeah a free element for everybody else has we've reached a point of crisis and the only way i feel that we can come out of this crisis is to reach unity consciousness which is a remembrance that we're all interconnected, that we are the ancestors of our future generations. What yeah. we do to ourselves, we do to the earth. And what we do to the earth, we're doing to ourselves. And that we need to recognize that ev- everything that shares this planet with us is equally as important. And any action that we do that is harming another species or even our species is going against natural law. And as the mm-hmm. dominant species on this planet, we haven't become stewards we, we and guardians. We've become dominators and abusers. And that is creating a situation further down the line where we are not leaving this planet hab- in, habitable for the future generations that are coming down. Not for our children, not for our children's children, but not for any of the other plants or, or animals that are also reproducing as well. So unity consciousness is what's going to need to happen to bring us back into alignment with what why we're here on the planet. And that's going to be coming within the next six years, I would say, very, very soon that if we don't wake up to this unity consciousness and start changing the way we relate to the world that is around us, then frankly, we don't have any right to be the dominant species on this planet anymore. And I, I don't think we will be. I think this is it. I think we're heading towards the end game. Whether we destroy ourselves mm-hmm. first or we destroy our, our, the habitation that we need in order to live healthily, or the fact that there's going to be so many environmental disasters and destruction that our systems are going to collapse and we haven't learned love and compassion yet. I think that there's a lot of that unity consciousness is the only way through it. Yeah, absolutely true. I mean, I also personally believe that. Our sole purpose, or at least the main purpose of a human life, is to steward, is to nurture. And there's so many different ways to do that. But so long as that is at the back of your head, that, you know, what sort of, whatever sort of practice you're engaging in and whatever actions you have and you take, that responsibility of stewarding and of nurturing and caring needs to be there. Like you said, right, um, in the early 2000s, you realize it's just like messed up and everything is probably going to go downhill from here. But it is about just awakening that consciousness of, yeah, you're you're here now and you still have the responsibility to take care of the land and of the people that you're close to, but also the more than human. And I feel like if we're able to do that, we can still somehow create better spaces for ourselves, even though if you're looking at it from like a bird's eye view, it might look like, oh, you know, everything is so bad. But if we're working within ourselves and our communities, I feel like that's where we can sort of create those spaces of hope and to actually go forward because we're here now and we have to get through somehow. Absolutely. I mean, while we're here on the planet, why are we here? What are we doing down here? 
I always say that we're at every moment we're making a choice. Yeah. Um, we have a, we're making, and, and in every moment we're making a compromise. In that choice, we have to make a compromise and the compromise is between our hearts or our egos. And when we choose our hearts, we get the short-term pain of the ego, but the long-term pleasure of the heart. When we choose mm-hmm. our egos, we get the short-term pleasure of the ego, but the long-term pain of the heart. And when you start living life like that, something's going to be in pain. It's either the heart's going to be in pain or the ego's going to be in pain. And we're all choosing the ego over our hearts. So we're all, to- we're all choosing the short-term pleasure of the ego over the long-term pain of the heart. And for an example, I know when I go out and I buy a coffee, I'm very basic in London, and I use one of those disposable cups. They might be eco, they might be from a tree, but they're still using a resource. I'm just one of millions of people who are using this one cup. I don't need that cup of coffee. I could even be carrying around a recyclable cup, but my ego wants it. So I am buying that cup of coffee because the short-term pleasure of the ego, but it's a long-term pain of the heart because Mm. in the long term, we can't sustain it. And it's going to take an awareness of consciousness, a shift of consciousness, that unity consciousness to say, I don't need, I can't do that because it's affecting the more than humans, the future generations, the unborn children. It's that awareness Mm. and that's unity consciousness. Yeah, beautiful. So just to sort of wrap up the episode, how can we then open up Western knowledge systems and Western systems of power to these alternative knowledges, right? What we call like indigenous knowledges or local or more than human knowledges. How do we actually end up mainstreaming that? So for example, like the wisdom that you uh, gained from the plants and engaging in these ceremonies, how do we bring that knowledge and sort of integrate it into Western knowledge systems or perhaps the opposite way, how can we sort of integrate Western knowledge systems into these knowledge systems, right? Because Western knowledge is not the sort of foundation and we need to build from it. There are other knowledge systems that are way older and, you know, they have always promoted to live symbiotically with nature. So how, how do we just bring them all together so that we you know, we can sort of do something with the mess that we have right now. How do we, how can we begin to do that? Agreed, no one could do anything about the mess that we are. <laughs> yeah. It's impossible. So no one's the Messiah. No one's going to come along and wave a magic wand and everything's going to be okay. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's way too messy for that. Um, I think you can only do your little bit. Mm. You can only do your little bit. You can only change your little, you can only change yourself. You can't change anybody else. You can change yourself and inspire others to make those changes, to live in alignment with your truth, with who you are, sharing your wisdom through podcasts, um, inspiring people, and opening it up to the potential that you might be able to at one point, you know, reach a lot of people on a on that energetic level, on that conscious level, and wake people up. Again, that is not an easy journey either because there's a lot of projections and hatred and anger and you know you have to be very sure of who you are if you're going to go and step out into any of this as you know indigenous culture and knowledge is not respected in any way and hasn't been for hundreds of years mm-hmm. and so that there's been a shift slightly but not really within policy yeah um 
And if you look at all the indigenous people that are well known, they've all become lawyers mm-hmm. <laughs> or educated. Yeah. Yeah. So have they might you might have the token indigenous person along for some meeting, but the ones that are actually making the waves are the ones that have gone into law, learned about law, and are now fighting their mm-hmm. for their defending their rights through a law process. That's one of the reasons why I went into academia, because if you can find a way in through academia, you're considered an expert that you've been trained I think very hard to break through without some kind of formal connection into that mainstream world I think it's it's incredibly challenging Um, I think if you're an influencer again a lot of people are then depending on you to be a certain type of person Mm. and you know you've got you're, you're under a lot of pressure to have an image and I would say most people that are into policy and everything don't don't really care for that kind of infamy so it's, I don't know what it's going to take. I ask myself every day for after 25 years, like I've just, it's just got worse. It hasn't got better. You know, <laughs> I came back and I was like, oh, 1998, we've got loads of time for like, you know, yeah. 25 years later and the world's in a much dire place. And it was, you know, even when I was in the Amazon and it felt pretty dire then. Now it is like extreme. And I don't know what it, what it would take to have this awareness I just every day I just do my little bit mm-hmm. and trust that there's a miracle happening, the magic, the wonder. As long as I'm still in it and a part of it, then I'm going to be able to make the changes of it. And for me, that's what keeps me going every day, keep, makes me up in the morning, knowing that at some point, I think if you keep bashing on the wall long enough, it, it does eventually um, crack open. And I think we're closer than we have ever than it, we ever have been. I mean, I've seen in the last. 10 years when I said to people, oh, I'm a shaman 10 years ago, 12 years ago, they were like, what the hell? <laughs> what the hell are you talking about now? <laughs> people don't bat an eyelid. Now they all know, you know, the, the, the awareness is there, is growing. So I think there's more chance of us in the West getting indigenous wisdom out into a policy environment than there is for indigenous people in indigenous countries to do that. Mm-hmm. Because we yeah, don't have uh, that here. Uh, we killed all our indigenous people off like hundreds of years ago in Europe. There isn't that any many indigenous, mm. there's no really indigenous people left, but the wisdom is there and it's how do you bring that wisdom in? And I think as a Westerner, it might even be easier to get that the voice heard. But I just think no one's ever done it in the UK mm. because it hasn't, there's no indigenous community. So no one yeah. has actually you know, speaking in that way is quite hidden, or there are a few, but mostly around Indigenous people in Indigenous communities. But I am Indigenous to the London. I'm a London, that's why I say I'm a murder. I'm not culturally appropriating any Indigenous culture. I am a urban, modern shaman that trained in the Amazon. Been walking the path for 25 years, but I'm, and I'm Indigenous to Mother Earth, and I belong to her. Mm-hmm. And my jungle is the urban jungle. So my aim is to bring this knowledge to the West and to Western policy in the UK, but it takes time. And I feel like the journey started by going into that world and seeing what was there and having a taster of it and realizing that I was ineffective because I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I was really standing for. I was in confliction over the plant medicines and the corporate, I couldn't, I couldn't find a uh, a happy medium with that at all. Felt very guilty, very lost. 
and 20 years of sh- being involved in the sh- in the shamanic world and the shamanic scene and also being a big part of it building it up mm-hmm. you know like I'm very well known and I've been you know my I've been around for a very very long time and I've met uh, so many people that now I know who I am going back into policy makes it much easier for me because I know who I am and I know what my identity is and when we know who we are we're in sovereignty is really the key to empowerment and when we're in sovereignty no one can take our power away from us and so for me you have to have reached a point of sovereignty and your own owning of your own empowerment and your own power I think then to be able to then stand up and try and change things on a more macro level starts with the micro but once you've reached that point where you know who you are and you're in that sovereign space that's when you are in a lot you're much more can be much more effective in a macro environment mm-hmm. yeah thank you so much rebecca for this episode and for imparting your wisdom and you know your um sort of standpoint in life it's so refreshing particularly living in london and yeah, like you have grown up here and it's you know, the world that you talk about in Amazon, it's so contrasting, but at the same time you can see the similarities. And I'm so happy that people here are actually, you know, warming up to these different practices and knowledges. And as you mentioned, right, it's sad to see that the West is probably more open to like bringing these knowledges in compared to you know, indigenous people fighting uh, for their rights and trying to mainstream their knowledges in their own countries. It's really sad to see that. But if if we have the privilege and the power and the resources, we might as well begin that, right? And um, yeah. every single person has that right and responsibility to take part in that in whichever sort of way that they can, right? Through volunteering or through like academic route or through um, a professional sort of route, so long as we're just fulfilling that responsibility. So thank you so much for coming onto the space and uh, just talking about your experiences and the wonderful work you're doing. I'm so glad we met through Jimena and also just like meeting Jimena too is just so inspiring and it's a world that I haven't really been introduced to and I'm really glad that I have been introduced to it um, by you and Jimena and I'm just, yeah, I'm so grateful for that. (laughs) Thank you so much for inviting me on and introducing me to your community and hopefully spreading more seeds of shamanism, hope and inspiration to more people and of course if anyone wants to find me yeah. our website yeah. is rebeccashaman.com that's r-e-b-e-k-a-h-s-h-a-m-a-n and you can always email me at rebecca at rebeccashaman.com or on instagram and facebook so yeah if anyone has any questions or would like to take the anything that i've said discussion further please do contact me directly thanks so much for inviting me it's been a pleasure to uh, have this conversation with you Thank you for listening to the Mindful of Everything podcast. Subscribe to the podcast and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. And don't forget to give a rating on iTunes so that the show can reach other wonderful humans like you who also enjoy engaging in the conversations held in this space. Connect with Rebecca and discover her wonderful work at rebeccashaman.com and visit mindfuloveverything.com for full episode resources.